A few years ago, the New York Times asked a group of artists and thinkers to answer a simple question. Why is beauty so important in our lives? They got a variety of intriguing responses. The actress, Constance Wu, wrote, Only human beings can seek out and express beauty. The hummingbird sipping nectar is merely satisfying her hunger. She does not know her own beauty. She doesn't have the capacity to perceive it. But we do. We enjoy art, music, poetry. When we become aware of life's beauty, that's when we are most alive. She's telling us that the pursuit and consciousness of beauty is something truly human. A couple of fashion designers, Lazaro Hernandez and Jack McCullough, wrote, Beauty will always have the power to inspire us. It is that enigmatic, unknowable muse that keeps you striving to be better, to push harder. And by that definition, what we all need most in today's world, perhaps, is more beauty. They're telling us that beauty is actually good for the world. And an educator named Reshma Saujani writes, Beauty can stop us in our tracks. It can inspire us move us, bring us to tears. The best kind of beauty changes hearts and minds. That's hard to argue with, with any of these. I mean, have, haven't we all been stopped in our tracks by the beauty of a spring day in New England? And hasn't that beauty lifted our spirits and inspired us to want to live and work and play with more joy and greater intensity? But the response I found most interesting was from a chef named Massimo Batura. He writes, Over more than 30 years as a chef, I have experienced beauty unfolding through my cooking. Beauty is not a singular ingredient, object, or idea, but the sum of the parts. Each dish has an appearance, a flavor, a temperature, a smell, a consistency, and a nutritional value, but its triumph is the story all those parts tell together. Pretty good, right? <laughs> I'm getting hungry just reading about it. But it was the next thing he wrote that caught my attention. When my team and I launched our first community kitchen, beauty was the guiding principle in our mission to nourish the homeless. We collaborated with artists, architects, designers, and chefs to build a place of warmth where gestures of hospitality and dignity would be offered to all. In a welcoming space, our guests had the freedom to imagine who they would like to be and begin to change their lives. In that space, beauty wielded the power of transformation. Now, here's what struck me about his response. It was both good and beautiful. A, a tasty meal, skillfully prepared, is a beautiful thing for those with the means and the opportunity to enjoy it. But when that experience is offered to those who might never have such an opportunity in a way that feeds their soul as well as their body, it's not just beautiful, it's good. And it can change lives. And it can change the world. And don't we all want that? for whatever it is we do with our lives and our work and our play, that, that we would do it with, with greater goodness and more beauty. In the words of an author named James Bryan Smith, no one seeks a dull, 
lifeless, boring, meaningless life. I've never met a person whose goal was to ruin his or her life. We all want to be happy, and we want it for those we love. And that's where we're headed in our spring teaching series. As we continue to reorder our lives and reimagine church on the other side of, well, that thing we're not talking about anymore. And as you can see, we have brazenly borrowed the title of our series from Smith's excellent book. Though I do want to point out that our creative team landed on that butterfly image without ever seeing the book cover. Now, we'll be focusing on some different themes than Smith does, but, but his book would actually be a helpful companion to this series. So this spring, we're going to look at the best and most beautiful life ever lived. Even skeptics and cynics admire the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. So each week, we'll spend some time in the Gospels taking a closer look at Jesus with an eye to his goodness and beauty, which has the power to change us and to change the world. And as we go, we're going to revisit some practices we talked about a couple of years ago in a series we called Bless. Practices like be in prayer, listen with care, eat together, serve with love, and share the story. Now, we began that series in March of 2020, just as that thing we're no longer talking about disrupted everything. Now, now we still preached our way through the series, but it was pretty tough to practice things like eating together when we weren't even allowed to be together in a home or a restaurant. So we'd like to revisit those practices this spring, because it turns out they really can lead to a good and beautiful life that blesses us as well as others. And after all we've been through the past couple of years, and with all that's happening in the world these days, I think we'd all agree that what the today's world needs most is more beauty and more goodness. So let's begin with one of my favorite Jesus stories found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. Uh, Karen and I visited an art museum recently, and there were certain paintings and sculptures that just seemed to capture people's imaginations, uh, so much that there was always a crowd around it, uh, taking it all in, appreciating the, the artistry of it. So the story we're going to look at today has that kind of power. So, so let's look at it the way we might look at a painting or a sculpture on display in a museum from different angles, paying attention to all the details. And, and let's see what we can learn. Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought a man to him who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. Jesus has found his way into Gentile territory on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And from the disciples' point of view, nothing good was going to happen in a place like this. And in fact, the last time they were here, they, they had that awful encounter with, with a demon-possessed man. 
and watched in a horror as a herd of pigs stampeded into the sea. And in spite of the fact that Jesus had delivered that man from his demons, that the local people were so spooked by what Jesus did, they, they wanted nothing to do with him and begged him to leave. But now, here they are again. And the disciples are probably wondering why. Mark tells us, some people brought a man to him who was unable to hear and could hardly talk. Now, we don't know if these people were Jews or Gentiles, but it's likely that, that they had heard about what Jesus did for the demoniac and were hoping that maybe he could do something for their friend. Now, in the ancient world, to be deaf and unable to speak was a difficult and lonely experience. On a, on a practical level, there were no public accommodations or ADA laws to, to make everyday life more accessible. And on a personal level, conditions like this carried a, a certain stigma of, of uncleanness and, and contagion that left a person like this isolated socially and spiritually. And so these people who came to Jesus wanted something better for their friend. Jesus responds with, with what could easily be described as a work of performance art. Let's keep reading. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers in the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephaphtha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Well, let, let, let's gather around and take a closer look at this master work. Uh, first, notice that Jesus took him aside, away from the crowd. Jesus is offering the man both privacy and his full attention. This man who was likely tired of being pointed at, stared at, and then avoided by people. But here comes this popular rabbi who takes him aside and treats him with dignity and respect. Well, well next we're told that Jesus put his fingers in the man's ears. Now, from an aesthetic point of view, it's not all that pleasing to look at until we realize what Jesus is doing. The man can't hear Jesus' explanation of what he's about to do. So Jesus finds another way of communicating with this man, touching the part of his body that he's about to minister to. At the same time, he's demonstrating that he's not put off by the man's condition. He's not afraid to come close, to get involved. Then Jesus spit and touched the man's tongue. Well, as the saying goes, don't try this at home. But, but notice again how Jesus is both communicating to the man exactly what he's doing and also demonstrating to the man the intimacy of their connection. You can't get much closer to a person than touching their tongue. Then Jesus looked up to heaven, letting the man know that he's praying. And, and with a deep sigh, 
expressing the compassion he's feeling in this moment, he says, Ephaphtha. One word, easily lip-read. One word that the man had waited a lifetime to hear. Be opened. It was such a beautiful moment that Mark, Mark can still hear Jesus saying that word in the Aramaic dialect. So do you see what's happening here? In the most tender and sensitive way imaginable, Jesus has entered into this man's world, communicating in ways that he can understand, engaging the senses that are available to him, senses that are even more finely tuned, probably, than for the average person, offering dignity and intimacy and worth to a man who's experienced very little of that in his lifetime. And with that one act, the man's hearing and speech, not to mention his status in society, is completely transformed. And before long, as with any work of performance art, a crowd of people had gathered around, admiring the work, whispering praise for the artist. Let's, let's keep reading. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and give speech to those who cannot speak. What Jesus did that day stopped people in their tracks. First, there was the goodness of it. This man, whose, whose fear and experience had been constrained, had now been physically, spiritually, and socially transformed. And then there was the beauty of it the tenderness, the sensitivity, the grace with which Jesus performed this work. Mark can still hear vividly in his ears exactly what the crowd said that day. He has done everything well. Now, now it happens that there were two words in the Greek language that Mark might have used here. There's the word agathos, which is usually translated good. It means right or proper or effective. And that certainly would have been an accurate word to describe what Jesus did. It was right and proper and effective. But Mark didn't use that word. He used the Greek word kalos, which describes something pleasing, attractive, or beautiful. Let me try to illustrate the difference. If you were to say, the Red Sox played a good game last night, you would be saying that they executed well and won the game. Now, I'm speaking hypothetically, obviously. If you said, the Red Sox played a beautiful game last night, you'd be saying that they did it with style and drama and the best kind of teamwork. And it was that second word the crowd used to describe the work of Jesus. It wasn't just agathos, good. It was kalos, beautiful. And the way Mark has told this story and structured his gospel, 
He means this word, this expression to be heard as a summary statement. Looking back on all that Jesus has said and done to this point, his teaching, his miracles, his handling of the disciples, his interactions with people, he has done all things well. It wasn't just good. It was beautiful. So beautiful that it stopped them in their tracks. So good that they couldn't stop talking about it. Whatever else people might want to say about Jesus, the one thing everybody seems to agree on is that Jesus lived a good and beautiful life. So good and so beautiful that it changed lives and it changed the world. But, but as remarkable as Jesus' life was, the more remarkable thing might be that, that he expected his followers to live equally good and beautiful lives. I mean, that feels like a, a pretty tall order. How could he expect ordinary men and women, not to mention fallen, broken men and women, to display this kind of beauty and goodness? But he did. Listen to what he says to, to a crowd gathered on another occasion. You are the salt of the earth, he says. He's talking to common people. You are the light of the world. Now, what does salt do? It makes food taste better. Well, what does light do? It reveals beauty. Then he says, Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And guess which Greek word he uses when he talks about good deeds? Kalos. Jesus expects his followers to live such good and beautiful lives that people can't help but notice and admire and for a moment at least be open to the possibility that God is behind it. Isn't that what beauty does for people? A sunset, a daffodil, a starry night? Doesn't it stop us in our tracks and for a moment make us wonder if maybe there isn't a God behind it after all? Jesus expects that the way we do our jobs and love our families and treat our neighbors and care for the needy will be so good and so beautiful that it will capture people's imagination and point them towards him. Is that true of you and me? Do people admire and appreciate the way we live and work and play? Is that how people perceive Christians and the church these days, as good and beautiful? Do, do we delight people when we show up uh, the way a butterfly brightens a summer day or, or causes a toddler to point and follow? Jesus wasn't just showing off that day in Decapolis. He was showing how. He was showing his followers 
how to live good and beautiful lives. How to, how to be in prayer, looking heavenward in all the circumstances of life. How to listen with care to the people around us, to our own hearts, to the prompting of the Spirit. How to eat together. Now, I know there, there's no meal in the story, but, but, but notice that Jesus has once again gone out of his way to, to hang out with some unlikely and, and irreligious people. How to serve in love. Meeting people at their point of need. Offering them our time and attention. And how to share the story. Jesus doesn't tell a story here. He gives them a story. A story so good, they can't stop talking about it. This bit of performance art was meant to teach his disciples how to live good and beautiful lives. And how to have the kind of impact on the world that he was having. Now, at that particular time, the disciples weren't really getting it. In fact, this story follows a, a sequence of events in which disciples kind of stumble and bumble their way from one event to another. And in this story, they are conspicuously silent, absent from the narrative, probably because they were so uncomfortable in this setting. So at this point in the story, several months into their journey with Jesus, they're not getting it. They're looking more like caterpillars than butterflies. But over time, after more teaching and more modeling and more practice runs, they begin to get the hang of it. And when the metamorphosis was complete, after the resurrection and the quickening of the Spirit, everything Jesus had taught them suddenly kicked in. Let's look at one more work of art here, a portrait of, of the early church in action. Now, we won't take a lot of time to talk about it today because we've done that on many occasions. Today, just look and listen. Imagine that you're standing in front of one of those giant Renaissance paintings hanging on a museum wall. Reading from Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. It's a beautiful scene, isn't it? It's a picture of people blessing each other and the world around them in the ways that Jesus had taught them. Being in prayer, listening with care, eating together, serving with love, and sharing the stories of Jesus. And did you catch that last line? Enjoying the favor of all the people. 
It sounds like people were as amazed at Jesus' followers as they were at Jesus himself. It sounds like these men and women had found their way to a good and beautiful life. So, so, so each week in this series, as we focus on one of these five ways of blessing others, we'll not only look at, at a Jesus story, we'll, we'll look at an early church story too, uh, to see how they and we can, can put into practice the things that Jesus showed us. So as we try to bring all this together and, and into our experience, uh, let, let's come back to those questions we raised a, a few minutes ago. Are we living such good and beautiful lives that people are amazed at us? Does the way we work and play and learn and love stop them in their tracks and cause them to wonder where that beauty comes from? When people think of Christians and the church, are we perceived as a force for good in the world? Do their eyes brighten when they see us coming? And don't miss the fact that, that the people who admired Jesus that day weren't religious people. He was in Gentile territory with people who were unfamiliar with his message. So, so we're not talking today about how we're perceived by our fellow church members. We're talking about how the gang at work perceives you. The soccer moms and dads you hang out with on a Saturday morning. The crowd you party with on a Saturday night. The neighbors whose property abuts yours or whose lawn signs represent a different political perspective from yours. Are the people around us admiring the way we work and play and live and love? And let's remember, too, that, that the man in the story couldn't hear Jesus' words at first. Jesus had to demonstrate with actions his love and compassion, his willingness to get close. Only then were the man's ears opened to hear the message that would change his life. And in a similar way, many people in our world today are deaf to our words. They're weary of our explanations of God's love. They're, they're skeptical of our invitations to life with God. What they need is a demonstration of that love a demonstration of that life lived out before them. Then, perhaps, like the deaf man, their ears and hearts and eyes might be open to hearing and experiencing that love and life for themselves. So with that in mind, this spring, we're going to learn how to live that good and beautiful life. Uh, because let's face it, as, as fallen men and women, these five practices don't always come naturally to us. I mean, we all too often forget to pray or, or neglect to pray. Uh, we're better at talking than we are at listening. Now, we do like to eat. <laughs> that part comes pretty naturally. 
But mostly we like to eat with people who are like us, people we're comfortable with, rather than those who might be most hungry for what we have to offer. We can be reluctant to serve, especially when it's inconvenient or, or when the needs or the situation are uncomfortable. And, and we often have a hard time sharing our story, especially when it means being vulnerable or, or, or talking out loud about Jesus. To put it bluntly, we're more often like caterpillars than butterflies. So, so there's some change that needs to happen, a metamorphosis of sorts. So as we spend time with Jesus in the early church this spring, we'll be inviting the Spirit to do something good and beautiful in us so that we can in turn offer something good and beautiful to the world. And if you're wishing for more works of art like this one to admire, spend some time this spring in the Gospel of Mark. Work your way through it story by story, as if you were walking through a museum, room by room. Have a journal or a notepad open. Start making a list of every good and beautiful thing you like about Jesus. Because a good and beautiful life is what happens when we live to bless others. Now, as, as I was working on this message, I, I was trying to think of someone besides Jesus who actually lived a good and beautiful life. Someone who has blessed the world in the ways we've been describing and done it so beautifully that, that they've inspired me and others to, to want to live that way too. So a couple names and faces came to my mind, but, but I pretty quickly found myself thinking about my mother. Uh, maybe because of Mother's Day last week or maybe because I've been watching This Is Us on TV. And if you're a fan of the show, you know what I mean. Now, it feels a little self-indulgent for me to do this, but, but I hope it will help us to imagine what it looks like for ordinary people like us to put into practice the things we've been talking about today. The first practice is to be in prayer. And that's how my mom began every day of her life. Most every morning as a child and a teenager, I would come downstairs and find my mother sitting at the kitchen table with an open Bible, a cup of coffee, and her head bowed in prayer, quietly talking to God. We prayed over meals. We prayed before bed. We prayed when our pets died. We prayed whenever something important or difficult was happening in our lives or the world. The second practice is to listen with care. Mom knew how to get people to talk, including me. She was a school teacher for many years, so we would get home about the same time every afternoon and, and sit at the kitchen table and have a snack and talk about our days. But it wasn't just her kids and her husband she listened to. Mom had a handful of younger women, most of them struggling in one way or another who would come by on a regular basis just to have coffee and talk to mom. And her listening helped and even healed some of those women. Eating together. Meals were a command performance at our house. 
Not so much because of the food, but because of the togetherness. We, we ate breakfast and dinner virtually every day as a family. And usually we connected again over dessert at the end of the evening. Mom had lots of people in her life, her extended family, her church family, friends old and new, and she made time and space for all of them. Serve with love. Even though she was raising a family and pursuing a career, mom was always serving, usually at church, teaching Sunday school, directing vacation Bible school. She was one of the first women to serve as a trustee at our church. And on a daily basis, she cheerfully set aside her own needs or interests for the sake of the people around her. Share the story. Mom devoted her life to telling Jesus' story and helping others to tell Jesus' story. She actually wrote a couple of books designed to help people tell the story well, especially to children and especially to people of other cultures. Much of what I know about telling Jesus' story, I learned from my mother. And over the years, many pastors have told me that mom was the best professor they ever had. She lived a good and beautiful life, and still does. At 88, she's a, a bit more limited than she used to be, but she still begins her days with prayer. She serves my dad as best she can. Whenever I'm there, we have a bowl of ice cream together at the end of the day, and she still takes delight in the stories of Jesus. Who knows how many people have paused for a moment on their journey through life because of some good and beautiful thing that mom set in motion. And she would be quick to tell you that it all began when she opened her heart to Christ as a teenager and was changed. So as I share her story, think about these five practices, I'm remembering something that Chef Massimo Bottura said about beauty. Beauty is not a singular ingredient, object, or idea, but the sum of its parts. Its triumph is the story all those parts tell together. Living a good and beautiful life isn't about any one thing we do. It's about all the things we talked about today. Prayer, listening, connecting, serving, sharing stories. It's not about any one day or one year. It's about all the days and all the years put together. It's not about what just one of us does. It's about what all of us do together as the body of Christ, being the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. And in the end, it's not about trying harder to be good or to look beautiful. It's about opening our ears and eyes and hearts to Jesus and letting him change us from the inside out, from caterpillars into butterflies. And if you've never done that, never invited Jesus to touch you and, and, and heal you and transform you into the person you were meant to be, that's the first step on the journey to a good and beautiful life. And we'd love to help you take that step. Just reach out to me, Brian with a Y at grace.org.
And for those of us who've done that already, but who may not be satisfied with the lives we've been living or the impact we've been having, let's come together with expectancy for the rest of this series. Because a good and beautiful life happens when we live to bless others. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful story and for the beautiful life you lived for our sakes. May you open our eyes and ears and hearts to your love and life this spring, that we might be changed by it and that we might share it with the world. In Jesus' name, amen.